You're listening to the Living Presence Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from East Gwillimbury, Ontario. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Living Presence Podcast. My name is Brianne Swan and I am your host as well as the community minister with the Living Presence Ministry, which is an emergent community ministry of the United Church of Canada in East Gwillimbury. On this week's show, we'll be moving into the Gospel of John and hearing a very well-known story about an angry Jesus clearing out the temple in Jerusalem. We'll be exploring the context the author of John was writing in, as well as the very real and understandable reasons people are angry and skeptical with the current institutional church. Our second reading will be once again by Khalil Gibran from his book titled Jesus, and we'll have more music by our featured artist this season, Ainsley McNeeny, as well as Toronto singer-songwriter Melanie Freyd. So the Oscars are on tonight, and the Me Too movement is on everybody's collective mind as the broadcast is playing on. Now, I've been struggling lately with Me Too, not at all with the women speaking out about their experiences of harassment and assault, but around the women whose experiences we are not hearing about, who have been left out the women who do not have the protection that status, financial stability, language, and race can afford them. Domestic workers who feel trapped from being able to speak up. Undocumented immigrants who are afraid of being sent away or not able to provide for their families. Or young women who feel like what they're presently dealing with is at least better than what they've had to go through in the past. And I don't know what to do about this nagging feeling that something is missing from the Me Too movement, except, I guess, to name the discomfort that I'm feeling. It feels sort of paralyzing, not knowing what to do or what to say. And I think that's why Melanie Freyd's song, I Won't Speak, stuck out for me when I heard it this week. Melanie hasn't even officially released this song yet but she's been kind enough to let us add it to the show. You can find Melanie online at www.melaniefraid.com and links to her music will be posted in our show notes. Empty 
My name is Stephen Milton, and I'm reading from downtown Toronto, Ontario. I'm standing at the corner of Avenue Road and Bloor Street, just north of Queen's Park. I'm going to read a passage from the Gospel of John, where he expels the money changers. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, 
His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That was Stephen Milton reading about an angry Jesus driving out the animals in the temple, animals that would have been used in sacrifice. And he was reading from just outside of Queen's Park, which is the provincial legislature in Ontario. And uh, just, just big, big sighs from me this week, because once again, our schedule of readings, the revised common lectionary, has us jumping around. Last week we were in Mark, with Jesus rebuking Peter. This week we're in John, which was written about 30 years after Mark, and who has a very different version of this story. And I've been finding myself annoyed because these two gospel writers have very different audiences and very different goals for their biographies of Jesus. Now for some context. If you've been listening over the past five episodes, you can just tune out for a few minutes because you've already heard me explain a couple of times that each of the four gospel narratives is written for a unique audience, a specific time, and a corresponding agenda. For the past few weeks in the Christian scriptures, we've been hanging out with Mark. Mark was the first gospel written to make it into the Christian canon, and he wrote his gospel about 40 years after Jesus' death, probably just after the Jewish temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed, and definitely written in a time of war, rebellion, and upheaval. John, which Stephen read from today, was the last gospel to be written. It was penned somewhere in the ballpark of 70 years after Jesus' death. The temple had been gone for about three decades at this point, and Christians are beginning to be subjected to localized persecutions by the Roman Empire. Now, I could sit here and completely geek out over the first 200 years of Christian history with you, but for the sake of time, and perhaps your boredom, I'll just put some links in our show notes. So back to our story, Jesus Clearing Out the Temple. This story appears in all four Gospels. But if we had stayed in Mark, if I had just thought to simply bypass the lectionary and stay in the same voice, we would have heard a different version than what we have here. For one, in Mark, as well as in Matthew and Luke, this story appears just days before Jesus' execution and is essentially the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Jewish religious leadership. They realize Jesus is dangerous and start thinking of ways to have him killed. Jesus' anger at the marketplace seems to be more rooted in economic exploitation of those coming to the temple for Passover. This is pretty much how it goes down. My temple should be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. This is one of the more famous scenes from Jesus Christ Superstar. But it is not how the author of John describes this event. 
Here, we still have an irate Jesus, but he's clearing out the temple at least a year prior to his death. This is happening right at the beginning of his ministry, and it is not the catalyst for his execution. In fact, Jesus enters into a dialogue. The priests come out and they ask Jesus, what sign can you show us for doing this? In other words, by what authority are you disrupting how things run around here? Jesus responds, tear down this structure and I will rebuild it in three days. Can you imagine how that must have sounded? Dude, we've been working on this place for 46 years, and you're going to build it again in three days? Come on, be serious. But they didn't get it. Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his body. God resides within the humanity of Jesus. John's Jesus is less angered by economic injustice, but rather that the temple and the religious leaders placed there through class, status, and nepotism are no longer needed because the connection to God is available in the life offered through Jesus and not through a dogmatic connection to a building. Now I want to be careful here because there should be a distinction made between how things actually were and how they are presented by the gospel authors. We always need to keep in mind that the author of John has an agenda and he has a point he's trying to make through his symbolic story. I have no idea what the religious leadership was actually up to. All we have to work with is the story and what we're given, and then try to work through what we can take from it. Remember, the author of John is writing 70 years after Jesus and 30 years after the destruction of the temple. Early Jewish Christians likely would have been thrown out of their community synagogues as well. There would have been longing and nostalgia for the days of the temple. That is where people could be close to God. I imagine a scene, a first-century Palestinian pub, old guys drinking pints of cascale and reminiscing, Remember the temple? Oh, those were the days. And if the author of John was listening in, he'd be the one saying, Guys, don't you get it? You don't need the temple. It's not about the temple. You don't need the temple to be close to God. There is another way. In my capacity with the Living Presence Ministry, I generally find myself working with four different and imperfectly categorized groups of people. And speaking of context, it's probably important to acknowledge that I come from a Christian, mostly mainline Protestant, specifically United Church of Canada context and bias. But our first group are people who are churched or rather people who belong or are connected to a Christian faith community, or who generally identify themselves as Christians. And by the way, I didn't come up with the use of the word church as a verb. I've inherited this language. But those who are churched have a history within a Christian community and have generally found it to be an affirming experience. The second group are people who have a faith affiliation other than Christian, 
East Gwillimbury is rapidly changing, and the new housing development where I live with my family has the great fortune to be made up of people from many different faith and cultural backgrounds. Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, the list runs way too long to name them all. My current neighborhood is more diverse now than the one I lived in in downtown Toronto. I'm happy to talk about Jesus with whoever wants to listen, but I have no intention or desire to convert or convince. In some ways, I function in our community as a chaplain. I am here to make sure everybody is okay, no matter who they are or where they come from. The third group are people who are unchurched, meaning they have never belonged to a faith community before, don't really have any background with the Bible, or likely any other religious text. And it's possible the only experience this group has had with the church has been what they hear in the news, which, let's be honest, usually isn't very flattering, or the occasional wedding and funeral. The fourth group are the de-churched, people who have experience with the church and belonging to a Christian faith community, but for whom that experience was either harmful or for whom the church has simply lost relevance. Now, as I said earlier, these categories are not perfect, and there is often much intersection among them. From people in the last three groups, and particularly from the final two, I hear many, many criticisms of the church, and I'd say most of them are pretty valid. The problem is, though, that the umbrella of Christian is pretty large. I mean, the Pope is a Christian. Martin Luther King was a Christian. But men who wear hoods and burn crosses are also Christians. Helen Prejean is a Christian. So is Desmond Tutu. And Donald Trump as well as a lot of people who support him at rallies, which are then covered by the media. Westboro Baptist Church is filled with Christians. It's a problem with the word being used as a noun and not as an adjective. There are some people who have been abused and mistreated by the institutional church. In Canada, probably the two groups who have been most harmed are LGBT communities and Indigenous peoples. Many Christian denominations still consider same-sex relationships to be sinful, and the idea that one could possibly pray the gay away is still alive and well in some communities. Even within the United Church of Canada, which affirms the dignity and diversity of all sexual orientations, as well as gender expressions and identities, there are still individual congregations who are emphatic that marriage is only between one man and one woman. This thinking has understandably turned many people off from exploring life within a Christian community. It's pretty hard impossible, really, to feel like you truly belong somewhere that doesn't accept such an integral part of your identity and human experience. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard, I'm fine with this Jesus guy. He seems pretty cool. 
It's all the other crap I can't stand. And our First Nations people, various church denominations, the United Church included, were involved in running residential schools on behalf of the Canadian government. The horror and the tragedy of those programs cannot be overstated. The church continues to have much to answer for, and it is a reminder that Christianity has never existed outside the context of imperialism. It's just what side of the colonial coin we have found ourselves on at any given time. In our relatively comfortable postmodern world, it is easy for us to forget or at least feel removed from how and where the Jesus movement originated. It was a movement rooted in oppression and both the submission and lack of submission to imperial powers. Christians do an incredible disservice to our sacred texts if we do not read them through the lens of a people who were at best oppressed and at worst enslaved. We also do an incredible disservice to these texts if we do not acknowledge that where we came from, a faith born in times of persecution, is not where we are now. This is not to say that there aren't people who identify as Christian who are discriminated against. But in our North American context, Christianity as a religion has traditionally been the faith of the majority, and certainly the identified faith of those exercising power. As the Christian movement eventually became allies to the establishment rather than its foil, we began to find ourselves with status and resources. And we started to build buildings. Our earliest churches were merely converted homes, but over hundreds of years developed into the stone structures whose architecture we instantly recognize now as being church. Steeples and bells, stone steps and archways. For many congregations, their buildings have become a symbol of their identity as a community of faith. They hold memories of beautiful times shared with friends and family and community. They are reminders of our shared history, where we came from, and how we found ourselves at this point in our journey. They are also a status symbol, a marker. We are here, and like this building, we are not going anywhere. Understandably, there are people who interpret this as hubris, But as we enter a post-biblical age, where it is no longer a given that members of the community will attend a church, or even have an awareness of Judeo-Christian scripture and story, we are finding the influence of our institutional church diminishing. Our relevance in the world is constantly being questioned, and rightly so. We are no longer the cornerstones of our communities. It is a difficult truth for many of us to admit to ourselves, but the church as we know it, as an institution and with our buildings, was created out of deeply entrenched colonial systems. And as a denomination that strives to journey on a path of reconciliation, it is necessary for us to examine which of our resources are a blessing and which are holding us back from reaching our full potential to live Jesus' example in the world. 
of course, it is not a clear comparison between congregational church buildings and the importance the temple in Jerusalem would have had for the Jewish people. The tragedy of the temple's destruction is still observed every year at Tisha B'Av, along with many other tragedies in Jewish history, and is regarded as the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. There is completely legitimate criticism about the resources put into buildings and the institutional structure of the church, exactly what Jesus is raging about in this story. Does that mean I think we should get rid of institutional church and level all of our buildings? No, of course not. There are not many places where people from different generations gather in one place to live out their connection in a shared story, where people are accountable to and invested in one another. Indeed, in many towns and cities across the country, churches continue to be the first place offering resources for low-income and marginalized individuals. But I understand the skepticism many have of churches. That we have become the temple Jesus is speaking out against. I will say this, though. I think the author of John could have been a little kinder, a little more pastoral to his audience. Perhaps the temple was not needed in order to be close to God, but community often is. And that was also part of what the temple and the synagogues represented. A sense of togetherness, a sense of identity. And that is also what church can be when it's done right when it exists in diversity and inclusion rather than a means to decide who's in and who's out, when it exists in a way that allows us to stand up for something rather than only propping up exploitive systems and dishonest leaders. I understand the frustration. I understand the anger. In her song, Sleep Through the Night, which we will hear in a moment, Ainsley McNeeny asks, Easy come and easy pray. Where those wings decide to lay down, tell me, amazing grace, who are you going to cut today? It has been like that. And in some places, it still is like that. But it doesn't have to be. When church is done well, when church is done with love, it is not.
The Man from the Desert On the Money Changers I was a stranger in Jerusalem. I had come to the holy city to behold the great temple and to sacrifice upon the altar, for my wife had given twin sons to my tribe. And after I had made my offering, I stood in the portico of the temple looking down upon the money changers and those who sold doves for sacrifice, listening to the great noise in the court. And as I stood there, came of a sudden a man in the midst of the money changers and those who sold doves. He was a man of majesty, and he came swiftly. In his hand he held a rope of goat's hide, and he began to overturn the tables of the money changers and to beat the peddlers of birds with the rope. And I heard him saying with a loud voice, Render these birds unto the sky which is their nest. Men and women fled from before his face, and he moved amongst them as the whirling wind moves on the sand hills. All this came to pass but in a moment. And then the court of the temple was emptied of the money changers. Only the man stood there alone, and his followers stood at a distance. Then I turned my face, and I saw another man in the portico of the temple. And I walked towards him and said, Sir, who is this man who stands alone, even like another temple? And he answered me, This is Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet who has appeared of late in Galilee. Here in Jerusalem, all men hate him. And I said, My heart was strong enough to be with his whip and yielding enough to be at his feet. And Jesus turned towards his followers who were awaiting him. But before he reached them, three of the temple doves flew back, and one alighted upon his left shoulder, and the other two at his feet. And he touched each one tenderly. Then he walked on, and there were leaves in every step of his steps. Now tell me, what power had he to attack and disperse hundreds of men and women without opposition? I was told that they all hate him, yet no one stood before him on that day. Had he plucked out the fangs of hate on his way to the court? of the temple? Each episode, the Living Presence Podcast offers an opportunity for listeners to contribute to our Love for the World segment where the worldwide community can lift up the people and places in need of alliance, awareness, and hope. Let us know who and where is on your minds this week. 
You can record your shout-out with your smartphone and email it to hi at livingpresenceministry.org. Or you can leave a voicemail at area code 289-903-0019. Your responses will be added to the show, and we are grateful for your contribution. So we've had a few people and groups send in requests for prayers and thoughts of hope and alliance this week. Paul in Caledonia, Ontario, has asked that we lift up all of the groups who are trying to find sustained, clean water sources worldwide. Margaret in Cochrane, Ontario, has asked that we keep in mind the athletes who returned home to North Korea after the Olympic Games. There is much concern that they will at best be publicly shamed and at worst forced into working camps because of the poor showing last month. We pray that these athletes and their families remain safe. And the last note we received this week came from the East Weymouth Congregational Church, which is a United Church of Christ congregation in Massachusetts. They say that what they hope for is for Enbridge to go away and stop their proposal for a compressor station in their community. There is fear this station will make the air in their community even more toxic than it already is and causing cancers, specifically leukemia, in the local residents. On my list this week, I would like to lift up the people of East Gwillimbury and the Chippewa of Georgina Island who continue to raise concerns about the proposed Upper York Region sewage solution and what that might mean for the water of Lake Simcoe. And finally, the United Church of Canada has recently gone through a series of remits which are votes by communities of faith and another layer of our governance called presbyteries, which have to do with a major aspect of how we function as a denomination. Our final remit, Remit 6 or the One Order of Ministry, had to do with recognizing three currently distinct streams of ministry— ordained and diaconal, which are both considered ordered, and designated lay ministry, recognizing them all as equal and under the same umbrella of ordination. It's far too complicated to get into in this space, and it's one of those things that feels important for those in the United Church, but means very little to those outside of it. But if you happen to want to read the background on this issue, I have posted some links in the show notes. The point of all of this, the results of the remit were released this week, and it was voted down. One order of ministry has been an extremely heated and divisive issue within the United Church, and there are people right now who are feeling very hurt and let down by the results. Honestly, there would have been hurt and disappointment no matter which way the remit went, I don't think there was any way this vote could have gone that wouldn't have left some casualties in its wake. We now have some very important work to do in mending bridges that have been burned along the way 
as we journeyed through a controversial issue and process. And so, I would like to keep in mind those who feel hurt and heartbroken over this result. And I'd especially like to hold all of the DLMs who are interpreting this vote as a dismissal of the vital work that they do, often in the areas of Canada where the ordered ministers will not go. We have so much healing to do, and a lot of issues still to address about what is fair and what is just within our denomination. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a reading from John, which is one of the best-known verses in the entire Bible. It's the one you see on the billboards and the street signs all over the place. We'll be examining the intersection of belief and action while listening to some great new music. So take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by the Living Presence Ministry, a community ministry of the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.livingpresenceministry.org.